This is part four in the Moore's murders. We ended up splitting part three into two different segments. And we did that after we recorded because it ended up being way too long. So if you listened to part three, you would have heard to come on over here and start this one to finish it out. So let's just get right into that. So this third victim, he was 12-year-old Keith Bennett, and he was taken and killed by this disgusting couple on June 16, 1964. Keith's birthday was on June 12th, so he had turned 12 only four days before he was killed. And he is a little sweetie. He was super small for his age, and he wore these little glasses. He's so cute. And on June 16th, he was wearing blue jeans and a leather jacket. And he was out with his friends just playing that night, just running around. And his mom was actually headed out and his grandma was going to be watching him. So his mom is Winnie and she told him to head over to his grandma's when he was done playing because his grandma lived super close by. So his mom, like I said, was Winnie and his stepdad was Jimmy. He had six siblings and his mom was seven months pregnant when he went missing. And she actually goes and has her baby prematurely after Keith goes missing. So do you think that's like a stress that can put you into labor? Because you work in the NICU. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. So just like a huge amount of stress. Any stressful. Yeah. Yeah. So, so sad the baby is okay and was fine, but goes into labor after her son goes missing. So the day Keith is abducted, Myra said she had gone to pick Ian up at his house. They were driving her new car. It's a station wagon. And Myra was dressed up trying to disguise herself, meaning they were, of course, seeking out a victim. And when the couple spots that group of kids playing, they pull up and they ask Keith if he can help them load some boxes before luring Keith into the backseat where they tell him that Myra has lost her glove and they ask if he can help her look for it. And then they head out to the moors. But Ian says that Myra lured Keith into her car by herself while Ian waited on another road. Again, she is usually the ones to lure the kids in. She always tries to distance herself. I would assume Keith probably wouldn't get in the backseat with Ian. Yeah. He's more likely to just get in with Myra. Mm -hmm. Either way, they get Keith to the moors. And Myra again tries to distance herself from the murder of Keith once they arrive. So she says she waits behind while Ian takes Keith and kills him. Yet Ian says that the three of them ventured into the moors together. Keith started to get worried about his grandma. He didn't want her to be mad about him getting back to the house late. And once they're out there on the moors, Ian takes Keith down and rapes him while Myra holds him down before they kill him and then bury him on the moors. And although police are able to connect Keith's murder to Myra and Ian more than 20 years down the road at the same time that they connect Pauline's murder, they never find his body. Still today in 2022, Keith Bennett is the only victim that has never been found. Mm -hmm. So sad. Why don't they just dig up that moors? I know. His mom, Winnie, she said, quote, if I see Brady, I will stab him end quote. And this was obviously a while ago before both Winnie and Ian are dead now today. Um, But she said that back then. And then she said this when discussing her final deathbed wish. She said this right before she died. 
and her final wish was to know where her baby was buried. Keith's family, mom, and law enforcement begged Ian and Myra for years to reveal where Keith was buried, but they never would. Winnie Johnson died at 78 years old without ever knowing where her son was. A pair of Keith's broken glasses were buried with her. Aww. I know. And she also said, quote, she also said, quote, I need my Keith to be returned from those bleak, cold, and windy moors that look down on me from almost everywhere I turn in my hometown of Manchester, end quote. So, so sad. She died without ever knowing where he was. I hope she has those answers Mm -hmm. on the other side (laughs) and is like reunited with him. Yeah. And that night that Keith had never showed up to his grandma's house, his grandma just assumed that he must have gone back to stay at home with his mom or maybe went to a friend's house. Remember, they do not have cell phones. So she never confirms this with anyone. And Keith's grandma was actually watching the kids overnight. So they stay there overnight. His parents stay at their house overnight. And then in the morning, his grandma walks the kids back to their home. And when they arrive, Winnie is like, um, where's Keith? You know, and his grandma is confused, saying that she thought he was back here because he never came to her house. He never showed up. Oh, my God. And Keith's whole, I know. Immediately, the whole family goes into a panic. They all went to sleep that night without even an ounce of worry. They all slept that night not even knowing that Keith had been in danger. That would be so devastating. And I know that would be so sad. I know his grandma like very much blamed herself. She searched for Keith a ton after this. Keith's siblings were devastated by his disappearance. Their family cried together every night. They would always beg for Keith to be returned. And immediately, Winnie, she calls the police and the search is on. At one point, Keith's stepdad, Jimmy, is actually questioned about Keith's disappearance. And for a while, he is accused of making Keith disappear. Everyone thought it was Jimmy. But we know that's not the case. Soon, people started to connect the disappearance of these kids. There had to be some sort of serial killer taking kids in Manchester. And they were right. Mm-hmm. The moms of Keith and John were the first to connect their, their son's murders. I think probably because it's two 12-year-old boys that oh, disappeared. Yeah. Very close together. They're the ones right after another. John and then Keith. So their moms are like, something's definitely going on here. And they actually start to do these meetups and they like talk about it together. And eventually Pauline's mom joins them and they all talk it out and they start to kind of go through this grief together since obviously no one else can even understand what they're going through unless you have a missing child. Right. And it was after Keith Bennett was murdered that Ian and Myra murder Leslie Ann Downey and Edward Evans before being caught and tried for the murders. We ended part two of this coverage at the beginning of the trials, and that's what we'll get into now. On April 19th, 1966, the murder trial for Ian Brady and Myra Henley and the murders of John Kilbride, Leslie Ann Downey, and Edward Evans begin. Remember, at this point, police have not tied Pauline Reed or Keith Bennett to the killers. Their trial lasted two weeks and was ran by Judge Fenton Atkinson. 
And although they were tried together, like we talked about last week, they did have different defense lawyers. Ian and Myra each testified in their own defense for around six to eight hours each. Myra, of course, testified that she was not responsible. She was just persuaded by Ian, and at this point in the trial, Ian is trying to help Myra get out. He ends up turning on Myra years after being in prison. They had both decided to stop writing each other, and he just got sick of her playing the victim card. During the trial, he thought having Myra on the outside would be beneficial to him. But once they were arrested and convicted and she just kept trying to put the blame on him, he was like, okay, I'm done. I'm letting everyone know how involved you really were. Yeah. Now, the chief witness for the prosecution was David Smith, that brother-in-law who witnessed the murder of Edward Evans. And he was the reason these monsters were caught. And while he did this amazing thing, it ends up being overshadowed when Judge Fenton Atkinson discovers that news of the British World tabloid has actually paid David Smith for the exclusive rights to his story. But the contract only holds up if the killers were convicted. So this is obviously not good for a fair trial. And the judge was upset and he calls it a gross interference with the course of justice. I'm sure it wasn't like bad intentioned by David, but it wasn't like the right thing to do. So Leslie's mom, Ann West, she testifies in court and it's during her testimony that she stops in the middle of answering questions and says, quote, I'll kill you. I'll kill you. An innocent baby. She can sit here staring at me and she took an innocent baby's life, the beast. And then she starts telling Myra that she's a tramp. And Myra takes offense to this, specifically that she's a tramp. So she leans over to Ian Brady and she says, I'm not a tramp. Oh my gosh. It's like, okay, no one cares if you're a tramp or not, but you are evil. So you're a killer. Yeah. Like you're (laughs) disgusting. And yeah. So Anne West like very much seems that she hates Myra because like I said, there are people who support Myra and They think that Ian Brady is the sole person, but Anne at some point is like, no, I listened to that tape. And from what I heard, I only heard Myra on that tape, Mm -hmm. like belittling my daughter, torturing my daughter, like Myra is evil. Yeah. And Myra lured all of them. Yeah. So I literally don't understand the supporters still, like not smart people. Mm -mm. (laughs) So it's May 6, 1966, that the jury finds Ian Brady guilty of the murder of Edward Evans, guilty of the murder of Leslie Ann Downey, and guilty of the murder of John Kilbride. Myra Hindley is found guilty of the murder of Leslie Ann Downey, guilty of the murder of Ev- Edward Evans, but she's acquitted in the murder of John Kilbride. So there wasn't enough evidence to tie her to this murder, although... I feel like circumstantially, she obviously was there. Yeah. Like, I feel like they could have just found her guilty. Hmm. Circumstantially, there is no reasonable doubt. Yeah. So they don't find her guilty in that, but at least she was guilty of two murders and would be going to prison. Ian was sentenced to three concurrent life sentences, and Myra was sentenced to two concurrent life sentences as well as seven years for knowingly harboring a murderer because the court at least knew that she was aware of John's murder. Again, 
like just convict her, yeah. but whatever. Yeah. These two, they actually probably would have received the death penalty, but it was abolished in England only months before this trial in late 1965. Dang it. And I know it's like, these are people I definitely wanted to see get it. And the judge stated, quote, this crime was committed by two sadistic killers of the utmost depravity. And then he goes on to call Ian wicked beyond belief. Judge Fenton Atkinson said he believed that Ian would never be reformed, but that maybe Myra could be while being away from the influence of Ian. I mean, I don't think so. I think Myra ended up really enjoying these murders far more than she leads on. Mm. She was getting this sexual pleasure from it just as much as Ian was. And she is just as evil and wicked. Yes. They're both pedophiles. They're both murderers. Yeah. So where do we go from here? Ian and Myra are thankfully behind bars and off the streets so they can no longer hunt down and kill children. But they're only convicted of three out of their five murders leaving two mothers still wondering what happened to their babies. One really sad thing, though, is that people who supported Myra Hindley, they actually desecrated and vandalized Leslie Ann Downey's grave all the time. Why? Yeah, they would vandalize it in support of Myra. That's stupid. Which it's like, Leslie was still murdered yeah. regardless. So she why didn't are you do anything. messing yeah, why are you messing with her grave? She was 10 years old. Oh, my gosh. Like, and hers was, her murder, like, is very, for me, it was the hardest to talk about. Who even supported her? Her family or just, yeah. like, random public no, people? I think it's, like, well, I'm sure her family did besides her dad, but it's, like, random people in the public who believe she was, like, this abused woman that was, like, persuaded so deeply by Ian and... They believe she was being, like, vilified in the media. Have you watched, like, Inventing Anna or, no, like, but I've Bad seen Vegan it. No, I've seen it everywhere, though. I just haven't had the time you, to watch it. You should yet. watch Bad Vegan and then tell me what you think. Is it, like... If she's... It's, like, about uh, this couple that is... <laughs> I don't know. Anyways, they do stuff the, together I don't like want to give it away. Yeah, they take money from people, but she says that she was like psychologically like abused by. It's him. like I'm sorry, but she was a smart lady. She opened like she owned a really popular restaurant, which made a lot of good money. But this guy would always like ask her to give him money, and she would. It's like, and he's like would say, "People are coming to get me." Like, I'm I'm not a human. I'm beyond human, and it's like. Did you really believe him or? Yeah. And then some people think that they were just taking the money and spending it. Yeah, probably. Which I feel bad for any victim of domestic abuse. abuse I know. Psychologically, physically, whatnot. It's like she seemed like, Myra seemed like she was obsessed with him and wanted to do anything to please him. But does that mean he had psychological control over her? Mm. Yeah, did that mean he was really abusing you? No, because you were so obsessed with him. You wrote, like, she wrote things about how she felt so safe with him. He, yeah. he was all she lived for. It's like, mm -hmm. no, you're just saying this because you want to get out on parole. You are not a victim of violence via Ian Brady. 
you just chose because you're obsessed with him. Now, maybe you're regretting that obsession because you're in jail, but I don't care. That sucks for you. Yeah. Go watch Bad Vegan uh, and then tell me what you think. I'm going to. <laughs> I've got to see now. I've got to see. Uh, thankfully, so in with Leslie Ann Downey, the, once Anne West dies later on in her life, way later on, they actually do dig up Leslie and they rebury her with her mom in an undisclosed location so that her grave could no longer be vandalized. Oh, good. So she's somewhere now that we don't know, thankfully, mm-hmm. so she can rest in peace. Yeah. Now, Myra and Ian, they did want to have each other's back during trial. Like I said, they sat there together supporting each other, holding hands. Ian's defending Myra, saying that she was not involved. The duo writes each other to keep their relationship going, but that only lasts another five years after their conviction. During that time, they had tried to get married because if you're married, you can actually still see each other. Like you can have visits. But that obviously does not happen. And they would fight in their letters. They'd break up on and off. And other times, they would write in secret codes to each other about the pleasure they found in hurting kids. And yes, I heard another statement made by Myra in these letters on Morbid. And it reads in code. So there's like a certain code where the letter sounds normal when obviously... The people, like the, they normally check prisoners' letters, right? So it sounds normal, but then they have this code where it writes out a different sentence. And in this code, Myra writes a letter that says, why don't you get someone to throw acid on Brett? So who's Brett? Brett is Leslie Ann Downey's four-year-old little brother. Oh my gosh. That is disgusting. And Myra's asking Ian to set something up for acid to be thrown on him. So obviously, again, she is something else. She is. So it's in 1971 that they stop contact. And then we know they really started to turn on each other. Myra full on blaming Ian in hopes of parole one day. And Ian finally letting the world know how involved Myra really was. He was not protecting her anymore. So Ian, he ends up getting Feral Publishing to help him publish a book from prison, and it's called The Gates of Janus, and this contained his analysis of many different serial killers, which I just don't understand. Like, let's not give murderers book deals. I do not care what Ian has to say. What was it called? It's called The Gates of Janus, and he is analyzing other serial killers. Like, we don't care. We don't care what he thinks about them. Who's Janice? I don't know. That's just what the book's titled. <laughs> yeah. I'm kidding. That's just what the book's titled. I don't know what it means, really, but just so stupid. Okay. So once the correspondence between Myra and Ian fizzled out in 1971, Myra finds a new love with a prison officer named Patricia Cairns. And it's like, you know what she did? Like, this lady is in prison under your watch because she raped and killed kids. And you're just going to, like, be in a full-blown relationship with her? Like, ew. (laughs) That's gross. Wow. I guess she got lonely. Clearly. And this relationship went so far that Myra and Patricia even had a plan in place to help Myra escape prison. They brought on another inmate named Maxine Croft. 
day in and day out, they were getting ready for this plan. But of course, they were caught and Officer Patricia was sentenced to six years in jail. As she should be. Good. Yeah. Myra also was rumored to have another strange relationship in prison. So the lawyer for a woman named Rose West wrote a book titled Understanding Fred and Rose West. This lawyer was Leo Goatley, and it was in that book that he revealed a relationship between two disturbed and sick women. Rose was sent to the same prison as Myra in the mid-1990s and was officially convicted in 1996 for the murder of her daughter, her stepdaughter, and about eight other murders, along with her husband, who was convicted of 12 murders. So this is like another sick couple. Actually, like everything I read on that story was insane. I'm probably going to cover it here soon (laughs) because I was like, what? And I just read one little article on you know this letter this guy wrote and them just kind of explaining it I was like huh like it was it was bad my wheels were turning so Myra got with this other lady yes so this is after her stint with the officer and now once Rose is in prison her and Myra they hit it off she tells her my her lawyer that Myra seems really cool she likes how she's super smart she's impressed by her intelligence And then when the lawyer talks to Rose again months later, Rose tells him, quote, you have to watch Henley's mind. She's very manipulative. You don't realize it, but she gets you doing stuff for her. She's clever. All right. She's flipping dangerous. Mm. She's flipping dangerous. That one. She ain't going to take me for a C-U-N-T again. And then their little fling was over. Wow. (laughs) Obviously. Maybe Myra was the one that. Was yeah, the she was. Yeah, and I did find that interesting because Ian Brady says the same thing about Myra being manipulative, saying that she is a chameleon who can turn into whatever she needs to be. Mm. So, yeah. So back in the same year of their conviction, 1966, Myra had appealed her conviction, but of course her appeal was turned down. She fought hard through her time in prison to get that conviction appealed or be released on parole. But the mothers of her victims fought hard to make sure that would not happen. To see Myra be released would have been detrimental to their mental health. It was not a possibility in their minds, and thankfully they succeed in their fight against Myra, regardless of her tactics. At one point, Myra writes to Leslie and Downey's mom, and within that letter, she promises she will never be seeking parole. And this was just some stupid ruse to try and get Anne West to back off on her fight against Myra to not be released so that she wasn't aware when Myra actually did try to get parole. But Anne didn't care what Myra had to say, and she never stopped fighting for her daughter's killers to remain where they belonged. Myra always kind of had these special privileges, though. They allowed her grandma Ellen to come visit her in prison because Ellen was dying. They allowed Myra to go out on walks with the warden. And these walks were hours long outside of the prison. She even got to go to a museum and people saw her and they got super pissed. Oh, my word. Is the warden a woman or a man? I have no idea. <laughs> She's just I guess like, she likes both. So I know. But, like, why is she out here willy-nilly? Like, the family was obviously pissed. Like, all the families. And just the community. Like, we don't want her out here. We don't want to see her. So, yeah, I just thought that was crazy. Now, the comments recorded 
between Ian and Myra and what they said about each other through the years were pretty comical. Myra basically turns on Ian, saying that he was the ringleader, that she never wanted to go along with any of this, that she was brainwashed and convicted to do these things. Which, I'm sorry, but there's not one GD person on this planet that would convince me to rape and kill a child. No. Like, you cannot just be convinced to do that. Mm-mm. And Ian, while he admitted that they very much loved each other at one point, he also made sure to comment on facts of Myra being so obsessed with him while he had much less uh, less of an interest in her. So he made comments about not liking her peroxide hair, how she flatters herself with certain comments she makes, and his, like, how he just wasn't very interested in their relationship at first. Now, let's go back to David Smith, Myra's brother-in-law, the man who, you know, got these people caught. And we started our story in part one with him when he witnessed the murder of Edward Evans. He was always rumored in Manchester to have been involved in the murders. And this was because Ian had implicated him in his confessions. And then so did Myra. Myra always said that David was the true accomplice, not her. And then the fact that he sold those rights to his story didn't help his reputation. David had a hard time in Manchester after the trials. Instead of receiving a thank you for taking these people off the streets away from the community's children, he got the cold shoulder and harassment all the time. He was attacked, calls were made to his house, bricks, rocks were thrown in his windows. And one night while walking alone, a man confronts him, calling him a child killer. David was so over it that he actually ends up stabbing this guy, which is not okay. Whoa. But the guy does not, yeah, the guy does not die. They like fought, David stabs him, and then David actually goes to the police station right away and he turns himself in. So he received two years in prison for that. Was he still with Maureen? <laughs> At that point, he was, yes. And there's this other weird thing about him. So just before their divorce, they end up divorced, but they're together at this point. David, and this is after his prison stint, David helped Mercy kill his dad. So his father had cancer. He was terminally ill. He was super sick, in pain. He was about to die. So David basically euthanizes him by giving him a drink with sodium amytal in it, hmm. like a bunch of it. And then he goes to jail for two days. That's it. I think maybe they knew he was about to die, but they were like, you can't really euthanize people. Jeez, I don't know. I can't decide because it's like, why would he go turn all all of them in? Like, why would he turn his brother and sister or his sister-in-law and brother-in-law in if he did it and he was a part of it? I, I don't. Oh, yeah. I don't think he was a part of it at all. I don't think he was, like, the most upstanding citizen on the planet, but I I think he was, like, truly terrified by what had happened. Mm. I don't think he was involved. Yeah. It was just, he's had these random things. Yeah. And um, so his marriage to Maureen Hinley, it did slowly deteriorate during his three-year stint in prison. And in 1973, he divorces her after finding out she was having an affair while he did his time behind bars. He actually tried to kill himself in prison when he found out, but he, of course, survives. And because we know that David ends up remarried to a woman named Mary Fodery, Fadery, Fairy, I don't, I'm not sure how to say that. And eventually he moves to Ireland where he passes away in 2012. 
After David died, Mary stood up for the fact that he was never thanked for getting the killers arrested. Quote, how many more would there have been were it not for David? End quote. True. And when, yeah, exactly. And she said the community never saw it that way, though. And she's like, hello, like more kids would have died. Yeah. So later on in his life, when David dies, he makes his wife Mary leave the room. And she believes it's because he had terrifying nightmares his entire life about witnessing Edward Evans' last breath. Quote, I am convinced he made me leave because he didn't want me to witness what he had witnessed. Somebody's dying breath. He told me it was the worst thing in the world. End quote. Mm. So, and David did help a lot over the years. He helped police and victims' families search for Keith Bennett's body all the way up until he died. He tried to show police places he remembered on the moors, going to with Ian and Myra. He helped keep Keith's brother, Alan, in the search for his brother. And it seems that David and Mary ended up raising David and Maureen's three sons along with their own daughter after David had gotten out of prison because Maureen had lost custody and never regained it. And she really rarely kept in contact with her sons. And then once he was over in Ireland, he did live a much happier life out there away from the rumors and the gossip that followed him in the streets of Manchester. Before he died, David co-wrote a book called Evil Relations. It tells the story of how he was vilified. His book was one of six nominated for prestigious Crime Writers Association Gold Dagger Award in nonfiction. And he didn't win, but that nomination meant a lot to him. So anyway, like I said, Maureen's kids had been taking taken from her while David was in prison because she was like leaving them alone. She wasn't feeding them. She was not taking good care of them while he was in prison. And after her divorce to David, she remarries Bill Scott. So she had three children with David, her three sons, and then one child with Bill. Now, after Myra was convicted, Maureen, unfortunately, received a lot of hate mail herself and she was harassed just like David. And obviously, none of that is fair to either of them. But her life really spirals downhill. I think she lived a pretty hard life, but she also hadn't taken care of her children, and that's not okay either. Bill ends up having an affair with a 15-year-old girl and leaves Maureen for her. (laughs) Yeah. So, it's not like she had the greatest life. I mean, obviously, she wasn't good to her kids, so that kind of makes me not Mm -hmm. like her, but... Sounds like she went through a lot, too. And Maureen actually dies an early death in her 30s, and that's in 1980 when she dies of a brain hemorrhage. Mm. So that's kind of where their lives went. Yes. And then as time goes on, we come to 1985. Ian is being interviewed by a journalist, and during this interview, something slips when he admits that he murdered Pauline Reed and Keith Bennett. So police, they come to Myra and Ian, but Ian retracts his confession and Myra denies that the that they were involved at all. And then regardless, police start searching the moors once again. I mean, these kids did go missing during the time Ian and Myra seemed to be on their killing spree. And both Pauline and Keith actually lived very close to Ian's neighborhood. But the search of the moors turned up nothing. And it's Keith's mom, Winnie, who sends a letter to Myra, begging her to help in finding Keith's body. She just wanted answers. 
So Myra now agrees to help, reporting that she is genuinely moved by the letter. Myra says that she will help by showing them places on the moors that Ian was interested in, places that Ian likes to go. Again, she's trying to place the blame solely on Ian. <laughs> most, most people, they believe that after she heard about Ian's slight confession, she actually wanted all the credit for helping discover the bodies. And she thought this might gain her public sympathy that would help fuel her fight for parole. So in 1987, Myra sits down with police for 17 hours and makes a full confession. She describes all five murders in detail, and then she is taking, taken out to the moors on two separate occasions to walk with police and try to identify where they had buried Pauline and Keith. But three months pass, and there are no discoveries. Until July 1st, 1987, when Pauline Catherine Reed's grave was uncovered. This was in an area that Myra had led police to, and Pauline was found to be buried only 100 meters from where Leslie Ann Downey uh, was discovered. That's what I'm saying. Why didn't they search more? I know. She was right there. So, Joanne, Pauline's mom, this was when she was in the psychiatric hospital at the time that Pauline was discovered. And police, they return Pauline's white high heels to Joanne. Mm -hmm. I know, so sad. So it's at this point that Ian offers up his help. He was honestly probably just jealous that Myra was able to go back to the moors a couple times. And I think he wanted the same privilege so that he could go relive what they did. Ian ends up being taken out to the moors on two separate occasions, just like Myra. But he pretends that he is out of it when he gets there, and he refuses to help them find Keith's body because he's so disoriented. And I'm sure he does know where Keith is, but he took that secret to the grave with him. And it's that same year that they tear down the home of Myra's grandma, where Leslie and Downey and Edward Evans were murdered. Ian spends two decades in prison before being moved to Ashworth Psychiatric Hospital after 19 years behind bars. At this time, he had been diagnosed as a psychopath. He was having extreme psychiatric health issues after spending years being beaten by other prisoners. Thank goodness. <laughs> and then he had to spend most of his time in solitary because he had to stay away from the other prisoners. And he even had an officer escort wow. because he was being beat up so much, which I'm proud of. Good job to those prisoners. Deserved. Now, yeah. Now, once he was moved, he begged to be allowed to die. He did not want to live any longer, and he goes on a hunger strike in 1999, and he had to be force-fed until his death, which is, like, not for almost another 20 years. Whoa. So, yeah, and he kept appealing to be allowed to kill himself, but no one would let that happen. They force-fed him for 20 years? They force-fed him for 20 years. Holy cow. <laughs> yep. Now, Myra, she actually dies before Ian in November of 2002 at 60 years old. She never got the parole she begged for. She was never released. Her supporters never got what they wanted. That proof that she was being railroaded because she wasn't. 
Myra was so sick throughout her time in prison, her health deteriorated as she had strokes, heart attacks, migraines, a broken femur, and so much more. So she suffered a lot, thankfully. And after creating several fake maps leading to Keith's body, that obviously were not, they were fake, and misleading his family, applying for all her appeals, and begging to get out of prison, and just being an all-around a-hole, Myra Hindley has a heart attack that sends her to the hospital. And while she's in the hospital, she gets bronchial pneumonia, and she dies. So goodbye thank goodness yeah all the victims families they felt a sense of relief that myra had died it didn't make anything about what she did less painful but they were happy that she was off this earth myra was cremated and scattered in a location that was never released and it better not have been the morris because that would piss me off if she was scattered at the morris oh yeah and i was thinking who scattered her probably her family i guess I mean, her sister's dead, but I'm not sure if her mom was still alive at this time. And her dad doesn't talk yeah, to her. Yeah, he's probably like, throw her in the trash. She should have been scattered into the trash. Like, just take mm. it outside and just dump it in the trash. <gasps> so, Ian Brady, he does finally die on May 15th, 2017. He was oh, 79 years barely. old. Yeah, just now. Mm-hmm, just a few years ago. He was 79 years old when he dies in prison, and like I said earlier, he refused to ever help find Keith Bennett's body, and he took that location with him to the grave. It was like his one last screw you to continue hurting Keith Bennett's family. So, the families of Pauline, John, Keith, Leslie, and Edward suffered a lifetime of pain and suffering. The thoughts of what these little children went through haunted them forever and caused rippling effects that spanned generations. At the time of their murders, Pauline Reed was 16 years old, John Kilbride was 12 years old, Keith Bennett had just turned 12 years old, Leslie Ann Downey was 10 years old, and Edward Evans was 17 years old. This podcast was created, hosted, edited, and researched and written by me, Kayla Waters. It's co-hosted by Alicia Jenkins. The palate cleanser is given to us by Charlie Waters. And our music was created by Jaden Schultz, who you can find on Instagram at In Pajamas Music. Please make sure to follow us on social, Instagram at True Crime Xpod, Twitter at True Crime Exposed, TikTok at True Crime Exposed Podcast, and Facebook at True Crime Exposed. Make sure to visit our website, www.truecrimeexposedpodcast, and please share your favorite episodes with your friends and family. Helping us grow our show will make it so we can keep bringing you cases that need to be covered, that you guys need to hear about. And if you feel so inclined, please do not forget to leave us a five-star review. Okay, guys, for our organization today, I wanted to do something a little bit different than highlighting something related to violent crime because earlier this week, I saw a horrific video that was devastating to me. It was a video of Tyree Sampson who at Icon Park in Orlando while on the free fall ride tragically fell to his death. This video is horrible. I hope it gets taken down for his family. I 
saw more than I intended when I clicked on the video, so I would not suggest going to search it. It is very sad, but it has highlighted and sparked conversation around the safety of roller coasters and amusement parks. I'm honestly an amusement park lover and this really made me reconsider. I'm going to be very weary for myself and my children and I think other parents should be aware. I'm also so sad for Tyree's family. I cried in my bed for hours after watching the video and they're going to be going through a lot after this. Even outside of their grief, they're obviously going to grieve their loved one and that's going to be so hard, but they're also probably going to have to go through lawsuits as well as pay for his funeral and many other costs like taking off work and whatnot. So I wanted to highlight this week a way that we could donate to Tyree Sampson's family and honor Tyree because his death, although it wasn't caused necessarily by another person in a violent way, it was a very tragic accident that was caused by human mistake, whether that's the manufacturer's factual whether that's the manufacturer's mistake or the mistake of the workers at the amusement park, that's being investigated, but his death should never have happened. So there are fake GoFundMe accounts out there, just so you guys know. Please, please, please please make sure not to donate to those fake accounts. I will share the real GoFundMe link that I found on his brother's Facebook page. I will share that onto our social medias if you need a place to reference. Also, I found his brother. It's J-R-O-C-C for the first name and then Junior J-R-R for the last name on Facebook. And he has shared multiple scam accounts and then today he did share that they have an actual GoFundMe. All the other accounts are fraudulent, he says, so please make sure to do the right one. Again, you can find that on his Facebook page. That post is public. And the real GoFundMe for Tyree Sampson's family is called Donations for Tyree Sampson, comma, organized by Nekia.N-E-K-I-A-D-O-D-D. So if you can, this is a family that's very actively in this moment going through a terrible hardship and they could really use your support.